This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This episode is titled Heretics, Part 2, The First Heretics. For second-generation Christians, and let's say that's those that came to faith after A.D. 70, Jesus became less a person they'd personally known, or the friend of a friend, but more of a mysterious agent in a cosmic drama. Because so many of today's pseudo-Christian cults deny Jesus' deity, it comes as a surprise that the earliest of the heresies to trouble the church had no problem accepting Jesus' divine status. What they struggled with was accepting his humanity. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up a bit. The first couple generations of Christians assumed that Jesus was returning soon. That expectation may have fueled that amazing sense of community we find in the early chapters of the book of Acts, where we read that they sold off property and distributed to one another so that all their needs were met. Many scholars now believe that early church leaders didn't bother composing a systematic theology, well, because they assumed that Jesus' return in glory was imminent. But when it was delayed, they saw the need to establish a better system for leading the church and for setting down guidelines for future believers. The teaching of the Twelve Apostles, better known as the Didache, written about a century after Christ, was just such a work. After a while, church leaders found that they were answering the same questions and dealing with similar objections over and over again. So, individuals began penning replies as stock answers that others could refer to. Sometime around the mid-2nd century, Justin Martyr wrote his first apology, in which he deals with pagan arguments, and then later he authored the dialogue with Trifle the Jew, which deals with Jewish objections. But it wasn't until Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon in South Gaul, wrote his masterwork against heresies at the end of the 2nd century that a work we might call a systematic theology was first produced. The actual title was the unmasking and refutation of falsely so-called gnosis. And it gives us a hint what prompted Irenaeus to set pen to parchment. Gnosticism. The Gnostics put together a coherent body of belief before the Christians did. And it might be said that Christian systematic theology was a reaction to the Gnostic challenge. Late to the game, when Christian theologians finally took up the task, They were so thorough in their refutation of Gnosticism that it petered out and fell into the abyss of oblivion, waiting to be resurrected in modern times by skeptical scholars, redacting history, and selling books suggesting that Gnosticism was the real faith of Jesus and the apostles, ideas that depend on silence for their support. Now, as an editorial note, and maybe rant would be a better description, and expressing my own opinion only, postmodernism regards the historical record with such suspicion, it's assumed what really happened is in fact the opposite of where the evidence would seem to point. Using the rubric that it's the winners who write the history, postmodern scholars eschew the records and assume that all history prior to the last 50 years is nothing but rank propaganda. So whatever the record says, well, that has to be fabrication. What really happened is the opposite. It's the classic argument from silence. 
But it's that silence the postmodern assigns the real weight of authority. So if the record of history shows that Gnosticism was an aberrant faith dismantled by early Christian theologians, well, the opposite must in fact have been the case. Gnosticism was early Christianity, beaten out by political elites who found Gnosticism too egalitarian for their tastes and their desire to remain in control of a poor and uneducated public, blah, blah, blah. Now, the problem with this skeptical postmodern view of history is not only that it's an argument from silence, if true, it makes everyone an historical agnostic. We can't really know anything prior to the modern era because, well, everything is suspect. The postmodern would have us ignore any authority but theirs to tell us what not to believe. Sorry, but I'll stick with the classics, skewed as they may be. We can discern more about what happened by the record of the past than by layering postmodern sensibilities on top of previous generations and saying what ought to have been is what really occurred. Okay, end of rant. As we saw in season one, Gnosticism was a widespread movement that drew impetus from the emerging Christian movement. It was a worldview that merged religion and philosophy and probably ought to have been expected in its time and place. The Roman Empire stretched its sticky fingers into many regions that had, well, mostly kept to themselves. Yes, there had been trade between these areas for centuries, but Rome's political and economic dominance saw borders drop and peoples of disparate cultures mix on a wide scale, really for the first time. Rome first imbibed the philosophy and religion of Greece, then this Greco-Roman worldview absorbed Eastern mysticism. The result was Gnosticism, a religious worldview that merged the Greek idea of dualism with the appeal of mysterious secrets that led the adherent to a salvation born of enlightenment. But Gnosticism stalled when it came into contact with the gospel because while the Gnostic sages sold their mysteries, well, the Christians offered their stuff for free. And besides, converts to Christianity experienced a genuine change that turned them from sinner to saint. In a clever marketing ploy, Gnostics adopted Christian terms and forms, presenting themselves as an advanced form of the faith. Most of what we know about Gnosticism, or at least that branch of it that sought to ride on the back of Christianity, is drawn from Irenaeus' work refuting it, that five-volume work known as Against Heresies. While trying to retain several ideas and terms intrinsic to the faith, Gnostics ejected dependence on Jewish history, a large part of the New Testament, the biblical Jesus and apostles. And so we might ask, well, after all that, what's left? Gnostics replaced the Bible's story of creation with an elaborate mythology of the spiritual realm being populated by a virtually endless hierarchy of spiritual beings they called aeons. Salvation was conceived of not as deliverance from sin, but as enlightenment. That enlightenment came by being initiated into ever deeper levels of knowledge of the aeonic realm. Following Greek dualism and Gnosticism, spirit was good while matter was bad and both unalterably so. So God, and by that I mean the original first cause, was so good, he was so holy, it could never have created the physical universe. No, something as corrupt as the earth could only be the product of some far-down-the-line aeon that was so distantly removed from the first cause, or that is the high God, that it was able to create matter and the physical universe. 
The goal of the Gnostic was to learn the names of the aeons and their unique character as far back up the line towards the first cause as possible. The idea was that the higher aeon you knew, the more aware of the divine you became, and the less the corruption of the physical had a hold of you. So Gnostics adored Christian words and phrases like mediator, logos, the Holy Spirit being filled with the Spirit, and regeneration. But they stripped these words of their origin in the historic gospel and life of Christ. What allowed Gnosticism to explode during the first half of the second century was that the New Testament hadn't come together as a recognized canon yet. What made Gnosticism appealing, and not just another philosophy for academics to debate, was its claim to divine revelation. They loved that Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They turned him into one of their aeons. But of course, if he was a divine being, there is no way that he had a physical body. So Gnostics said that Jesus was a divine spirit. Some Gnostics called him angelic. Others said that he was an aeon and probably ought to be regarded as a god, a lesser deity somewhere on the hierarchy of aeons reaching back to the first cause. But Gnostics categorically rejected the idea that Jesus was human. In their system, something so holy would never have a physical body. So the appearance of Jesus was just that, an appearance, a phantom. He left no footprints, cast no shadow, didn't eat. Now those of you who've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament know these records of Jesus' life have abundant stories of Jesus' physicality. That's why the Gnostics rejected so much of the New Testament. And as an aside, if you have a modern translation of the New Testament, you may note that there are occasional footnotes that say something to the effect of, this verse or this passage not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. That statement, that they're more reliable, is an editorial comment on the part of the publisher. They're indeed older, but reliable, well, that's a debate. The manuscripts they refer to are from the Alexandrian textual tradition, which some conservative scholars believe bear a Gnostic influence and editing. So most of the question verses deal with, can you guess? Right, passages that speak of Jesus' physicality, such as when he stooped and wrote in the sand. That remark that the Alexandrian text is more reliable isn't due solely to the fact that the manuscripts are older. It's also an assumption made by more liberal scholars that the shorter text must be more true to the original. Their presupposition is that over time, as manuscripts are hand-copied, those who pen them will be inclined to add material rather than delete it. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls pretty much nuked that idea. Some of them predated previously extant manuscripts by hundreds of years, and yet when the text was compared, it was virtually identical. It's nothing but an assumption that the shorter text is more accurate. So if you read that in a footnote, remember that it's not a statement of fact, it's merely an opinion, one that in all likelihood is based on an erroneous presupposition. It's long been believed that Simon Magus, referred to in Acts chapter 8, started the Christian-esque flavored Gnosticism. Simon offered the apostle Peter money if he'd teach him how to bestow the Holy Spirit on others. Well, Peter rebuked Simon's crass merchandising of the faith, and it's from Simon's offer that we get the term simony, the practice of purchasing religious office. Okay, get this. 
According to the Gnostic tale, Simon met a woman named Helena at a brothel in the city of Tyre. Now, what he was doing in a brothel, we can only guess, but our guesses need be few. One, actually, and he wasn't there to tune their piano. Simon said that this Helena was a reincarnation of someone called Enoya, a manifestation of the Spirit of God. In her previous identity as Enoya, she had created many ranks of angels, some of which rebelled against God. These rebels then captured and imprisoned her in a mortal body. She was then reincarnated many times, including one stint as Helen of Troy. But in Simon's day, well, she was a prostitute in Tyre. And Simon, of course, was now the highest God's manifestation that had come to rescue her. Simon said the Old Testament was the product of the malicious angels seeking to defame God. And to follow Simon was to free oneself from the Old Testament's oppressive religious requirements. Christians accused Simon and his devotees of practicing magic and the occult. This became a regular charge by Christians against the Gnostics, that they performed lying signs and wonders. How much of these were mere illusion? Remember, Simon began as a magician, an illusionist, and how much of it was the working of demonic power as anyone's guess? Well, it was likely a bit of both. Simon's brand of Gnosticism included several points that will be repeated by later heretical groups. Number one, there was a blending of biblical ideas with paganism and Eastern mysticism. Second, there was a dualistic view of reality that divided it into the sacred spirit and the profane physical. Third, the idea that a savior had appeared to lead people to salvation. Fourth, a rejection of Jewish scripture. And fifth, an intense interest in the hidden and the secret because it was believed that's where the good stuff that led to salvation lay. Those secrets were the domain of special teachers who, of course, would impart their goodies upon payment. Simon Magus reached Rome before the people there were familiar with the gospel, so he was able to present himself as a savior and gained a significant following. Later Gnostic teachers had to work against a background of greater familiarity with the gospel, and so they left off claiming to be saviors themselves. They simply worked Jesus into their system as one of the Gnostic aeons who had appeared to help enlighten humanity. And when I say appeared, well, I mean that literally. The Gnostics said Jesus was a phantom, that he possessed no physical body but only seemed to do so, giving rise to a movement called semism, or literally docetism. Even Simon said that as a manifestation of the highest God, he only appeared to people to have a body. He didn't really have one. He had no flesh. So the crucifixion was a farce to Gnostics. Someone as lofty as one of their aeons would never consent to such a travesty. Some of them denied the cross ever happened. Others said that indeed a man did die on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem, but it wasn't the Christ. It was just a man named Jesus. They split the divine spirit called Christ and the human man named Jesus into two distinct entities. The Christ spirit supposedly descended upon a suitably prepared man named Jesus at his baptism by John. It was that Christ spirit that then said and did the stuff we read about in the Gospels. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before his crucifixion, the Christ spirit lifted off the man Jesus so that the person the temple police arrested was just a used and bereft shell. What hung on the cross was just a spent flesh case. Jesus' death did nothing for the Gnostic. It couldn't because Gnostic salvation had nothing to do with sin. 
Humanity's great problem, said the Gnostic, wasn't sin and its result in separation from God. Mankind's problem was ignorance. Now, for Christians, salvation meant deliverance from the penalty, power, and ultimately from the presence of sin. The Gnostic aspired to knowledge that would help him or her realize that their real identity and existence as primarily a spiritual being over whom the physical realm had no influence. Gnostics tended to pursue this awareness in one of two ways. Some went the route of extreme asceticism, denying their bodies any and all pleasure. The idea was to abstain from all sensual pleasure so as to give the spirit complete dominance over their will. But the intense hunger and thirst of severe abstinence has a tendency to have the opposite of the desired effect. It makes you keenly aware of the reality and presence of the body. So while some pursued enlightenment via extreme asceticism, the far more popular route was the exact opposite, a hedonistic immersion in pleasure, an enthusiastic embrace of immorality. These Gnostics said that the way to enlightenment was to engage in scandalous debauchery, then, while in the very center of it, to realize that all that was only happening to the body, which is unalterably corrupt anyway, yet their spirit remained pure and untouched by such corruption. It was having your religious and philosophical cake and eating it too. But not just eating it. You were smearing it all over your face and rubbing it in your hair. You were taking off your clothes and rolling across a field of four-inch layer cakes with cream cheese frosting. All the while saying, The real me isn't covered in cake. I'm clothed in the glorious light of heaven. What's covered in cake is just the dirt suit I've borrowed during this round of reincarnation. Now, as previously said, Irenaeus wrote against heresies to refute Gnosticism probably sometime between AD 180 and 89. But some scholars believe that Gnosticism was already waning as Christians became more conversant in what the gospel really taught. Gnosticism was able to emerge and a secure adherence in its early phase, both because of a lack of a New Testament canon and a widely endorsed creed. But all of that changed during the second century when more and more books began to be accepted among the churches as normative for the faith and the earliest versions of what much later would be called the Apostle Creed settled in. The history of Gnosticism is a tangled mess of names and conflicting ideas and tenets. It had its own denominations, movements, groups, and factions that argued and fought with each other. And while it made a run at Christianity during the early second century that seemed at times to present a real challenge, it ended up proving the truth of something that Jesus had said to his disciples, that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. While Gnosticism became little more than a dead faith, a field for academics and historians to autopsy, renewed interest in it has flared up whenever the same factors that marked the late first century church have been repeated. When the veracity of scripture is regarded as suspect, when the New Testament is subjected to the scoffing of critics and the Old Testament is relegated to myth. Gnosticism has managed to flare back to a brief moment of interest when Christianity is cut loose of its historical moorings and real events and made into little more than a moral philosophy. When salvation is deemed a matter of deliverance from ignorance rather than a return to innocence. Amen. 